We are starting a new series this morning, uh, maybe kind of a mini-series. It's going to be a four-week series through the little letter toward the very back of your Bible, over there by Revelation, through this little letter of Jude. Um, This is a very small little letter. More than likely, it fits on one page in your Bible, and most people forget it's there until they pass by it on their way to Jude. So they, you know, they're trying to read about the end times or something, and they go, oh yeah, Jude's in there. This is a very small little letter. It's only 25 verses uh, long, about 613 words total. And, and you don't hear a lot taught on the book of Jude. You don't hear a lot preached on the book of Jude. But as we've begun to pray and prepare for this series, here's kind of what has landed on me, and that is that I believe um, this is a very powerful little letter, and it is absolutely uh, relevant to where our church is and where our culture is, and here's why, because Jude is going to deal with a mandate for the people of God. He is going to call us to Hold fast to what is true and to what is right. And he's, he's, he's dealing with a reality that we already know is a reality. And that is that uh, in our culture, there is a deliberate, um, intentional effort to diminish and dilute what is true, right? We, there's just this intentional effort in our culture to do that. And they're doing that. The culture wants to do that by saying everybody gets to have their own personal truth, right? Which really feels good when you say it until you follow it out to its logical end. And what you realize is that's some nonsense and it leads to chaos if everybody can decide for themselves what is true. And so um, Jude is saying that was in his culture and it was working its way into the first century church. And he is saying, hey, truth or church, we have to hold fast to what is true. And it's relevant for us, not just because it's in our culture, but it's also trying to work its way into this church. And so Jude establishes for us this, um, this theme, if you will, that we're going to be under for the next four weeks. He kind of sets this canopy that the next four weeks are going to be under, and it's this, that it is the responsibility of the church in every generation to stand in defense of our faith. That's kind of the heartbeat of, of the, this little letter of Jude, that it is the responsibility of the church, that's us, in every generation to stand in defense of our faith. You know, when you think about July the 4th and you think about celebrating our freedom and our independence and this, this way of life that we're getting to celebrate, um, it's, it's impossible for me to celebrate that without remembering that uh, someone stood in defense of that freedom, right? It's why we honor those who have been a part of our armed forces. Because every time a soldier puts on a uniform, they embrace a reality that I don't know anything about, and that is that they may very well be called to go and contend for this freedom and contend and defend this freedom that we have. And in that way, Judah's saying, church, we are called to stand in defense of our faith. And that's what this entire little letter is about. And so this morning, what I want us to begin doing is building the framework for how we're going to see our next four weeks and building the framework for um, allowing us to see this call to stand in defense of the faith, to receive it, 
and then to obey it. And so grab your Bible, go to Jude. If you get to Revelation, just start going to the left a few pages and you'll be there. Go to Jude. Um, I would say go to Jude chapter one, but Jude only has one chapter. So just get to Jude and you'll be fine. All right. And we're going to start in verse one. When you're there, say I'm there. Here we go. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who were called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of, God, of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So I want to answer a few questions to kind of give us context for this little letter um, so that we've got this shaped in our mind today and, and moving forward. And so I want to talk about who wrote it, who it was written to, and why he wrote uh, the letter. So let's jump in. Obviously, we can see Jude identifies himself as the author of this letter. He says right there in the first part of verse 1, Jude, the servant of Jesus and brother of James. Right? That's how he identifies himself. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, there's a couple of things to notice here. The first is this. Jude is actually um, an adjusted name in English. This was not his original name. In the original language, um, the name wasn't Jude. So in Greek, it wasn't Jude, but the name was Judas. And uh, for obvious reasons, <laughs> the, the, the translators realized they needed to maybe adjust that name or soften that name because Judas was a very common name back in this day and age. A lot of people named Judas, but let's be honest, there's only one of them we remember, right? And nobody wants to read that cat's book, all right? Nobody's reading that dude's letter. But so they've adjusted the name of Judas to Jude. Um, and it, I think it's important to remember he identifies himself as the brother of James. Now, who was James? James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And in the New Testament, there's only uh, one place, one people that we know of, um, who, who was a man named Judas who had a brother named James. And we see it in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Now they're talking about Jesus here, and it says this, the people are gathered around and they say, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. So not only is Jude the brother of James, but Jude is also the brother of Jesus. That's who this is. This is Jude, the brother of Jesus. But he doesn't, I find it amazing that he doesn't identify himself as the brother of Jesus. He doesn't begin by bragging about that. I got to tell y'all, if I'd have wrote this letter, that's the first line in my book. Hey, everybody. Brother of Jesus here, pay attention, right? That's, that's the first words out of the gate if I would have written this letter. But that's not what, Jesus, uh, not what Jude does. He doesn't begin by bragging about 
that relationship, but instead, Jude identifies himself the way that every true believer should identify themselves, as the servant of Jesus Christ. Meaning, I am his servant, he is my master. That's how he identifies himself. Jude leads with the spiritual relationship, not the um, biological relationship. Why does that matter? Because more deeply than Jesus being his brother, Jesus was his savior. I just find that incredibly uh, meaningful. So that's who Jude is. That's who wrote the book. Now, who did he write it to? Well, look again at verse one. Who's this letter for? He says, to those who are called Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So he is writing to a particular audience that he says has been called, beloved in God, and kept for Jesus. This is a group of people who have experienced the salvation of Christ. They um, have been called by God into a relationship with Jesus. They are being preserved and kept for Jesus, meaning this is a group of believers. This is the church. That's who he's writing to, so that everything he says in this letter is relevant to the church and meant to be embraced by the church. This, that's who this is for. He isn't writing to a person. He's writing to a people, to a community of faith. And holding on to that um, is going to help shape how we navigate through this letter. Because remember, Jude is teaching us, he's teaching a, a, a church principle here that it's the responsibility of the church in every generation to stand in defense of the faith. And so what we're going to discover is the book of Jude is a call to action. That's what it is. It is a call to action. Now, it, it begins very lovingly. He says, you guys who are called and loved and kept and may grace and mercy and love and peace be multiplied to you. It begins very lovingly and it ends very lovingly with one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. You guys have heard me quote it. It's Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before the throne of grace, faultless and without blame, to him be glory forever. And so it begins very lovingly, it ends very lovingly. But in between there, it is nothing less than a call to arms. And it is a call for the church of Jesus to rally to the faith, to remain faithful to it, and to stand in defense of it. That's what this little letter is for. And that's why he wrote it. Let's look. He says in verse 3, why did you write the letter? He's writing to encourage them to do this, contend for the faith. That's what he says in verse 3. Just like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, if you were here a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus says, there are going to be false prophets among you, wolves in sheep's clothing. And just like Paul said in Acts chapter 20, he says, there's going to be fierce wolves come among you to try and lead you astray. And Peter said it in 2 Peter chapter 3 when he said, there are going to be people coming in with these... Um, um, heretical uh, teachings with these destructive heresies, and they're going to try to lead you astray. In that same way, Jude is dealing with and warning us against false teachers and false believers, those who would come in and distort the doctrine of the church. And there's this urgency that we hear in his warning. There's this urgency. He, he, it's this sounding of the alarm 
And what I would tell you is Jude is not typically the letter people go to when they want to get comforted. <laughs> it's just not that, you know, we go to the Psalms when we want to feel comforted or we love, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter makes us feel all warm and fuzzy. Nobody goes to Jude to feel comforted. This is a, this is a letter of cha- challenge. It's a letter of outrage, right? It's a letter of urgency. And that's what it is to remain faithful um, to the faith. Jude said, um, I, I find it interesting that he said, I was going to write to you, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. When Jude sat down to pen the letter, he was going to pen a letter about just the joy of belonging to Jesus and the salvation that we share. But he said, but what I was felt compelled to do, what I was pressed by the Holy Spirit to do, was to write to you appealing, pleading that you would contend for the faith. Because what Jude recognizes, um, he's pressing us to contend for this faith, to stand in defense of it, because he recognizes the reality that what we are willing to fight for is really what shapes us and declares who we are. That's, That's what he's discovering and he's what he's wanting the church to discover. Um, there are two times in, in my history of my life that I uh, got into a, a physical altercation, you know, where it, uh, where it came to fisticuffs like this right here. Do they still fight like this? Um, this is how I know I would be terrible at it because I still think it's supposed to look like this. Two times that happened to me. Uh, one of them was at church camp. I took a beating and I don't want to talk about it. Here's the second one. Uh, <laughs> That's true. The second one, I was in junior high, right? I was in eighth grade. And every uh, day when, when, when it got to recess, we all went and played basketball, right? It was like 100 on 100. It was one of these chaotic prison rule basketball games. And uh, I was in eighth grade. My little brother was in sixth grade. So he's this little guy. And he was coming to play with the eighth graders. And I was playing and there was this guy guarding me, and I was guarding him. And this dude was really, Michael, he was trying to get me to fight him the whole time. The whole time, right? Talking trash, pressing on me, running his mouth. He was goading me. He really wanted to. But I, I was back then, kind of like I am now. I was like, dude, come on, man. That ain't happening. And so, but then my brother guarded him. And he took the basketball, not my brother, the other guy. He hit my brother right in the face with it. Now, I saw my brother back up and do this, and then I saw blood just fall out of his, out of his mouth. He had split his, like his, split his lip open. Now, all of a sudden, I was like, okay, you push the right button. Let's do it. And, we, <laughs> and then that's when that happened. And uh, here's, here's what shifted. All of a sudden, what really mattered to me was under attack. It, it, it got attacked. And Jude is writing this letter to the church and saying, church, what matters most is under attack and you are going to have to stand in defense of it. You're going to have to stand in defense of it. He says, I want you to contend for the faith. That word contend in the original language paints a picture of wrestling, of agonizing, of earnestly wrestling for something. It's where we get our word agonize. The word for contend in Greek is where we get our English word to agonize over something. And that's what Jude is saying. He's saying, if this faith that you say has saved you 
and has made you new in this truth that you are clinging to and building your life over, if that is true and it has captured you, then you are going to have to wrestle for it, contend for it, and pull it away from those who would distort it and delude it and deceive others. That's why Jude wrote this letter. So how do we do that? How do we contend for the faith? Well, there's four words that I think we see here that if we'll navigate through them, they're going to kind of help set our feet and um, clarify our vision and square our shoulders in this battle to contend for the faith. And so I want to give you all four of these words right here at the beginning. They are identity, security, adversity, and responsibility. So we're going to unpack these, but these are the four words that are going to help set our feet and clarify our vision for contending for the faith. Well, let's unpack these. What is our identity? Jude tells us who we are. Again, verse one, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Again, I I can't get over that when Jude was giving his identity, he didn't say he was the brother of James. He said he's the servant of Jesus Christ. That word servant literally translated, here's what it means, devoted slave. Oh, we draw up at that language, don't we? I like servant way better. It softens it a little bit. Servant softens it. But what it actually means is devoted slave. Now, we put all the negative connotations around the word slave, but the truth is, in this shape, what it's saying is this is someone so devoted to their master, they have gladly surrendered their own will to receive his. That's what Jude says. I'm a servant. I'm a devoted slave. Man, do you think about your relationship with Jesus in that way? It is my joy to relinquish my will and give it up so that I can have his. That's what that That's the picture that word paints. And the reason I think Jude leads with that is because knowing that about Jesus and and him being your master and you being his servant absolutely shapes everything about your identity. And here's why I think Jude describes himself this way. Jude did not always believe in Jesus. Do you know that? This is his brother, right? There was a time where Jude... And the other brothers didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. As a matter of fact, they thought he was crazy. They thought he was delusional. There is a moment in Scripture in Mark chapter 3. you got to see this. Jesus has just appointed the 12 apostles. And um, as usual, this massive crowd is around him wherever he goes. And look at what it says in Mark 3 verse 20. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. They were pressed. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him to get Jesus, for they were saying, what? He is out of his mind. (laughs) That's how Jude felt about his brother. That's what Jude really thought about Jesus. So what changed? What, What happened in Jude's life that moved him from thinking Jesus was crazy to calling Jesus Lord? What moved him from being a non-believer to being a servant? of Christ, a devoted slave? And the answer is this, the resurrection of Christ. That's what happened. He saw his brother die, crucified. 
He saw his brother buried, and then he saw his brother alive. Listen, I want to tell you something. When your half-brother dies and then gets up from the dead, that'll do it. That'll, that'll be the thing. Yep, that's him. He's a, I, never mind, I was wrong. You're right. You are who you said you were. That'll be the trick right there, right? That's what happened. He saw Jesus resurrected. In Acts chapter 1, Jude is among those who are right there that Jesus has appeared to after he's resurrected. He's seen his brother alive. He's there when he ascends into heaven. And it says that he is in the upper room with the disciples and those who were following Jesus with Mary, Jesus' mother, and the other brothers of Christ. Jude is right there. He saw the resurrected Christ. He experienced the resurrected Jesus and it changed his identity. That's what happens when you meet Jesus. It changes who you are. Jesus doesn't just become a part of your life. He becomes the fullness of who you are. When you have been captured by him, he becomes the fullness of your identity. And this matters because in contending for the faith and earnestly wrestling for it and agonizing for it, it requires that you've been captured by it. It requires that you have been taken, that it has taken hold of you. Because listen, you're not going to fight for a faith that hasn't taken hold of you. You're not going to wrestle for a faith that doesn't matter to you. You're not going to go contend for a faith that hasn't transformed you. Jude said you've got to contend for it, but the only people that are going to be willing to contend for it are those who have been captured by it. That's what happened in his life. We contend for the things and we prioritize the things that have gripped us and taken hold of us. And I think this is why so many people in the church who say they are Christians, they see church as optional. They see the gathering of God's people as optional. It's why so many people will say, yes, I'm a Christian, but, I see, but prayer is disposable. I rarely do it by myself, and I'm, I don't ever come do it with church on Wednesdays. Prayer is disposable. So many people who say, I love Jesus, but they see giving and living open-handed as impractical. It just doesn't make sense. I ain't doing that. And so many people who say, I'm a Christian, I belong to Jesus. But when they see somebody truly living in full surrender, you know what they do? They go, that's irrational. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. That dude's crazy. Because they haven't been captured by this faith. But when our identity is set in Jesus, when we've been captured by it, when it is set as a servant, as a devoted slave, suddenly what Jesus loves, we love. And what he says matters, we prioritize. And what he says is worth fighting for, we are willing to stand in defense of. So let me ask you, is your identity found in Jesus? Is your identity, is he the fullness? Have you been captured by this faith? That's the first word I think we see there. The second word is security. Look again at verse 1. Jude said, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who were called, beloved in God, the Father, 
and kept for Christ Jesus. There's three words there I want you to notice. He says that we're called, we're beloved, and we're kept. Here's what's amazing about those. All three of those words imply an action, but all three of them are in the passive tense, which means this, that while we are receiving the result of the action, we aren't the ones doing the action. That's what those words mean. Someone else is doing the action on our behalf. Jude says we are called. God has called us to this salvation. He says we are beloved. We are loved by God in this salvation. And he says we are kept. We are kept by God and his power for Jesus in this salvation, which means this. Your security in Christ is built on the calling, keeping love of God. Your security in Jesus Christ is built on the calling, keeping love of God. That is a glorious reality. Because <laughs> you know what that means? My security in Christ isn't built on my performance. It isn't built on my perfection. It's built on his power to keep me. His calling, keeping, love. I love that word kept. It says you have been kept for Jesus Christ. That is just an especially beautiful word to me because it implies protecting. It implies preserving. It implies standing guard over something precious. The Lord God himself stands guard, keeps you in this salvation. So much so that Jesus used these words in John chapter 10. He says, those who belong to me, he says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Ready? And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. And my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And guess what? No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. an issue that the enemy uses in the hearts of believers. He's used it in my heart to make us feel like if we fail, we're not sure we belong. Anybody else other than me just acknowledge that's a, has been a, just a thing you've battled that when I fail, I'm not sure I belong. I want to tell you if, you, if you know in your life that there has been a moment when you've made Jesus the Lord of your heart and he changed you, you are kept. You are secure. The Lord God has said, I have put you in my hand. And Jesus himself said, nobody snatches you out, which means this, not even you can snatch you out of God's hand. Isn't that glorious? That's amazing that I am kept by God. That's who we are. Now, why does this identity and why does this security matter so much? Why does it matter that we know who we are and we know who keeps us and we know who we belong to? Because Jude says, you're going into a battle. You're going to go fight for the faith. You're going to go contend for it. You're going to go wrestle it away from those who are false. And I want to tell you, church, when we stand in defense of the truth, we will often stand in struggle and in persecution and in isolation. And you better know who you are if you're going to stand. And you better know who you belong to if you're going to stand. 
Because while our culture spins further away from the truth, those who are willing to contend for the faith will stand more and more in isolation. Which is why this matters. It is why the church is not disposable. It is why it cannot be seen as optional in your life. It is why prayer in the body of Christ cannot be seen as optional. Because you will, there are no Rambo Christians. They don't exist. Jude did not write a letter to a person. He wrote a letter to a people. And it is imperative that you graft your life in with God's people so that you can stand in the moment when he calls on you to go and contend for the faith. And knowing who you are and knowing whose you are positions you to contend with courage because it tells you this, the one I belong to has already won. And I'm not over here trying to fight for a victory. I'm fighting from a place of victory. I'm fighting from a place of truth. I'm fighting from a place of freedom. And that changes how I wade out into the battle. Amen? So that's who we are. That's whose we are. Let's look at this third word, adversity. What is Jude warning us against? Who is he warning us against? Look at verse 4. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, again, Jude is dealing with false teachers. He's dealing with false believers. And he's dealing with what we call apostates. How many of you know that word? Apostates. Just a churchy word. Here's all it means. An apostate is someone who would covertly and intentionally distort the truth of God's word. That's an apostate. Someone who would covertly and intentionally distort the truth of God's word. And we have to notice something here. This is really important. Jude isn't warning us against apostates and false people outside the church. But rather he's saying, I'm warning you against those who have crept in unnoticed. That's who he's calling. He, we, see, we tend to focus all of our energy and all of our attention on the things outside the church that we don't agree with. We tend to focus all of our, our energies and our, our, our outside on the things that are happening in the culture and in the society that we don't like and we don't agree with. And Judah's saying, you need to look in the church. There's some that have already crept in and they are diluting the truth of God's word. How do they do that? Because they say they love the name of Jesus, but he ain't the Lord of their life. In other words, they love the idea of not going to hell, but they hate the idea of surrendering their will to him. Golly, Pastor, it's the holidays. What are you doing? It's July 4th. We're off tomorrow. Why are you yelling like that? He said there are those in the church who are perverting the grace of God. And they are perverting the grace of God by denying the lordship of Jesus over their lives. 
meaning they know how to pretend to be a Christian. They know how to sit beside Christians in church. They know how to sing the same songs Christians sing and use the same language Christians use. But Jude said, that's not who they are. They are, they are ungodly. He's accusing them of taking God's grace and perverting it to lead whatever kind of life they want to lead. They have rejected the fact that Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. That, that's the adversity we face. That there are those who creep in and might agree on some beliefs, but they will deny the authority and the lordship of Jesus over their lives. But listen, when Jesus is truly your Lord, it's undeniable. It's undeniable. Because we are changed. Not just in the words we say, but in the life that we live, we are changed. But Jude says, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they don't deny Him altogether, but they reject His Lordship. They reject the idea of surrendering their will. They, they live their life saying, the rules don't apply to me, which is why they see church as optional, which is why they see prayer as disposable, which is why they see giving as, as impractical, and why they see those who truly do live surrendered as irrational. It's why that doesn't make sense to them. And so they have this kind of rules don't apply to me rhythm. And the way they dilute the truth is they begin saying things like, do you really have to be that serious about it all the time? You got people in your life like that? Are you like that? Gosh, do you really have to just be that serious about evangelism all the time? Can't Sundays just really be about we get together and just feel better and try to get through the next week? Isn't Sunday just about feeling a little better and singing some songs that make me feel better and hearing a joke or two and, and getting some giggles and hearing some decent pre? That's what Sunday is about. And I'm telling you, God didn't design his church for that. He designed his church to be uh, the aircraft carrier where we come together and we are refueled and sent out to go contend for the faith. That's what this place is. It's not a cruise liner. God help us. Heaven help us. And if the fullness of your experience with the church is that you treat it like a cruise liner, meaning I come in so that I can get what I want and feel good, and it gives and it gives and it gives, if that's your experience, I need to ask you, have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? Is he your identity? Is he your security? Because this is, a, this is an aircraft carrier. This is where the soldiers come and get refilled and we are sent back out to contend for the faith. Jude said it is a perversion of the grace of God to think that we can hold on to Jesus and live however we want. So that's a perversion of God's grace. He uses the word sensuality. Now, we tend to think of that word uh, only in like a sexual connotation. Um, but when Jude uses it here, he's talking about any feeding of our flesh over the surrendering of our will. That's what he's talking about. Any feeding of our flesh over the surrendering of our will. Now, you're saying, all right, man, I get it. Can I ask you a quick question? So what? 
So what if there are some people who aren't as enthusiastic about Jesus as you are? Why are they so dangerous? Why is there a whole letter written about them? Because when people slip in who are ungodly, which, by the way, is anyone drawing you away from the mission of God. When people slip in who are ungodly, not holding to godly beliefs, seeing church is optional, prayer is disposable, all those things. When, they, when those people come in, you know what they begin to do? They begin to influence other people. Go and look in God's Word and see what Paul talked, how Paul talked about what a little bit of leaven does to a whole lot of bread. They begin to influence other people. So let me ask you, who is influencing you? Do the people that speak into your life, are they causing you to love Jesus more? Are they pulling you into a deeper devotion to Christ? A deeper commitment to his mission? A deeper love for his church? If there are people in your life who are saying things like, man, you really, listen, Jesus loves you. It's all about grace, man. You don't have to do all this other stuff. You might have a wolf dressed like a sheep. Because what we're called to do is contend for the faith. And you can't contend for what you haven't been captured by. That's our adversity. Let's look at our responsibility. What is it that we're actually called to do? Jude said in verse 3 again, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, what does Jude mean by the faith? That is the truths of God's word, the truth of God revealed to us through God's word. That's the faith. It is it is the sacred beliefs that we hold about God that we have been given from God's Word. It is the sacred beliefs that this book has given us that form our understanding of who God is, who His Son is, who the Holy Spirit is, what salvation is, and what it means to live with purpose that He has given as a kingdom citizen. That is the faith. That's what he means. It's that structure of beliefs that we have received from God's word. And Judah's saying, you've got to be willing to contend for that. And notice he says, it was once for all delivered to the saints. Meaning it has been, I love that word delivered, meaning it's been given to us, it's been handed over, it's been deposited, it's been put under our care to steward And I just want to tell you, we don't contend for the faith by being nasty. We don't contend for the faith by maligning people. We don't contend for the faith by trying to be snarky and out-insult somebody. If your means of contending for the faith is to try to be the snarkiest person on Twitter or Facebook, can I just, from your pastor's heart, can I tell you something? Knock it off. You ain't helping. You're just, it breaks my heart when I see pastors doing that nonsense. I don't need, we don't need any more keyboard warriors. Amen? There's enough of those. 
I need people who are going to hold up the standard. I need people who are going to grab this book, make it the absolute treasure of their life, walk in it, not relent from it. If you will do that, that's enough. If you will do that, that's enough. Now, does that mean you can't use Facebook to contend for the faith? No, it doesn't. But there is a means by which we speak the truth given to us in God's word. And what is that? We speak the truth in, in love. In love. So if the way that you are contending for the faith is angry and bitter and divisive and hateful and rude and snarky and ugly, know this, you aren't contending for the faith. You're contending for your own reputation. Jesus said, my people who contend for the faith, they don't relent from the truth. They contend for it. They defend it. They speak it, but they do it in love. Thanks for letting me rant. This is the job of every believer. I want you to hear me. Every believer that lives between the cross of Jesus Christ and the new creation that is coming bears the responsibility of contending for the faith, of standing in defense of this, of remaining faithful to the gospel and faithful to the church. And here's why. Because the persevering of our faith is critical to the flourishing of our mission. And what is the mission? It's the Great Commission, right? So Jesus said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Go make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all things that I commanded you. What does he say? Go teach them the truth and know that I am with you to the very end of the age. And the Bible says that is something that must be preserved. John Piper said this. He said, there are truths about God and Christ and man and the church and the world in the world which are essential to the life of Christianity. If they are lost or distorted, the result will not be merely wrong ideas, but misplaced trust. Because when doctrine goes bad, so do hearts. There is a body of doctrine which must be preserved. Here's, here's the point. We contend for what matters, right? We fight for what's valuable. Imagine if, if you go in to an art gallery. You go into this art gallery, and before you go in, um, the docent says, hey, this art gallery is filled with some of the most expensive, valuable pieces of artwork on planet Earth. There's paintings. There's sculptures. There's um, all sorts of beautiful structures that you're going to see, and they are worth millions and millions of dollars. But then you go into the art gallery, and you don't see a security guard. There's no security system. There's not even a rope separating you from the art. What are you going to determine if there is no means of protecting what they said is priceless? It must not be worth that much, right? It, It must not be worth much. So I'm going to tell this story on myself and I was in high school, so stop judging. So I I was um, in high school and I was a big fan of Elvis back in the day, not because I'm old enough to remember. I wasn't all right, but I'm just saying uh, I was a fan. Any other Elvis fans? Great. Great. The rest of you get your life together. So um, 
I had an opportunity to go to Graceland. And it was, it was like a bucket list deal for me at the time. I was like, man, this is awesome, going to Graceland. And when you go into Graceland, um, you're walking through the house, and most of the rooms are roped off. You can kind of look in, but you can't go in, right? And you're walking by all the things that Elvis had, these crazy rooms with leopard print carpet, and you're like, Elvis was just ridiculous. But you're seeing all these things, but you can't really get to any of them. And there was this one place in this open area, this big giant room, and they had cool stuff sitting there. And one of the things they had there was Elvis's golf cart. And his golf cart looked like you would expect Elvis's golf cart to look. And so I don't know what came over me. I really don't, uh, Shane. I just know that all of a sudden something in me went, I should sit on Elvis's golf cart and I should do that right now. And so, listen, I'm not proud of it. I'm really not. But high school Matt just lifted that little velvet rope and I snuck under and I sat on Elvis's golf cart. I want to tell you something. For five seconds, it was glorious. It was really great. But within five seconds, alarms started going off because I didn't know there were sensors around there. And some men showed up. They were wearing really nice uniforms that had the word security on them. And they put, they said, sir, if you'll come with me. And then I was invited in a very special way to not come to Graceland anymore. And so if you're asking if high school Matt got kicked out of Graceland, the answer is, yep, I did. And so um, now I may go back today because I had hair back then. They wouldn't know who I am. But the point is, we, we protect what's valuable. What's valuable gets protected, and what's worthless does not. What is valuable in your life, you will protect and defend, but what you do not give value to, you will not protect. Does this faith matter to you? Is it precious to you? Are you faithful to it? Are you willing to stand in defense of it? I think those four words help shape. But I'm going to put four things on the screen that I think you can take this word. If this word gives us the faith, here's four things I want you to do. I'm going to put them up there. If you want to write quick, you can, or you can just take a picture. How do we contend for the faith? We submit to God's word as your ultimate authority. You submit to God's word as your ultimate authority, which means this church, you ready? This becomes the filter everything in your life passes through. Right here. This is the, you just embrace it as the ultimate authority. You submit to God's, I'm sorry, you study God's word to know and understand it. You study God's word to know and understand it. You speak the truth of God's word with grace. Okay? You can't speak what you don't know, and you can't know what you haven't submitted to. Submit to his word, study his word, speak the truth of his word, so that you can do the last thing, which is stand up for God's word without compromise. So that you can stand up for God's word without compromise. I'll leave that up for just a moment. Have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? Is he your identity? I'm not asking if he's one of many things that make you who you are. I mean, is he the fullness of your, of your identity that tells you who you are? If you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life, I want you to know something. Today really can be a day of freedom for you. 
July the 4th can be a day you never forget because it can be the day you gave your heart to Christ and you found true freedom for the very first time, just like Sierra demonstrated just a little little bit ago. That can happen today. Maybe this morning your confession would be, um, I simply am not valuing what Jesus says matters most. And if that's you, I want you to know, failing does not rob you of your security. If you can point to a moment in your life and you can say, Jesus is the Lord of my life, here's when he changed my heart and I've never been the same, then you can know you are kept in the calling, saving, keeping love of God. But he may very well be calling you to repentance and surrender, to come and recognize this faith is worth defending. If you've never been baptized, you've been saved, but you haven't been baptized, you can do that. You need to come tell us. Come say, I haven't taken that step of obedience where I've just declared to the church that that Jesus is my Lord and I'm not ashamed of it. If that's you, you can come. So we're going to take a moment to respond. I'm going to invite you to stand and I'm going to pray. And then we're just going to worship for a moment. And um, if you need to come to salvation and to freedom, you come. If you need to come and pray and just confess and ask God to raise up a holy courage and you do that. But you respond. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us, for the truth of your word. And God, I pray that um, in these next moments we would just be obedient to whatever it is you're calling us to do. Thank you for the faith that has saved us in Jesus' name. Amen.